0: most white American fiction, because it uh, pretends to have a large imagination, it it pretends to a kind of universalizing ambition, but also circumscribes itself, has failed artistically.
1: That's Jess Rowe, a Pushcart Prize and Penn O'Henry Award-winning author who Granta named a best young American novelist in 2007. In this episode, we talk about Rowe's novel, Your Face and Mine, and find out just what he thinks has been one major failure of many American novelists. You're listening to a podcast brought to you by the Howenstein Center at Grand Valley State University. I'm Joseph Hogan, and this is Common Ground. Jess Rowe's recent novel, Your Face and Mine, imagines a world in which racial reassignment surgery is a possibility, even a commonplace. The book begins with a scene in which its narrator, Kelly Thorndike, runs into an old friend called Martin. Only there's something very different about Martin. He was once a white Jewish man, but now having undergone a surgical change in skin color is now, by appearances, African American. Written before the Rachel Dolezal controversy, Roe's book asks some important questions about race, ethnicity, and cultural appropriation. In the New York Times, Dwight Garner writes that your face and mine, quote, puts Roe on another level as an artist. He doesn't shy away from the hard intellectual and moral questions his story raises or from grainy philosophical dialogue, but he submerges these things in a narrative that burns with a steady flame. There's some Jonathan Lethem... In Mr. Rowe's street-level awareness of culture, there's some Saul Bellow in his needling intelligence. In our conversation, Jess Rowe discusses some of the questions his novel raises. We also talk about some of Rowe's critical journalism on race and representation in American fiction, and on the failure of major writers such as Jonathan Franzen and Philip Roth to, in Rowe's view, even attempt to explore the reality of racial diversity in American life. All that and more is coming up in this episode of Common Ground. Jess Rao, thanks so much for coming on the podcast and talking with me.
0: Oh, Thank you for having me.
1: So your novel, Your Face and Mine, is about a white Jewish man, Martin Lipkin, who undergoes a radical new surgical procedure to change his race. Martin Lipkin becomes Martin Wilkinson. Uh, the once white Jewish man becomes an African-American man. Your narrator, Kelly Thorndike, is an old friend of Martin's, and early in the book runs into him in the parking lot of a grocery store. Thorndike is stunned. He sees Martin, knows in some sense this is his old friend, uh, but this is the first time he's seeing Martin as a black man, and he hadn't had any idea that Martin had had the surgical procedure. I'm wondering if you could read a passage just after this scene for us, in which Martin first tells Kelly, the narrator, that he's had this surgery. So in this passage, the narrator,
0: Kelly, describes Martin. He reaches up and pulls the hood away from his forehead. His hair, a black man's hair, of course, razored close to the scalp, with neat lines at the temples and the nape of the neck. The look of a man who's close friends with his barber. I can't help thinking of my own scraggling beard and the last time I tried to crop it into a new shape. How it looked, as Maymay used to put it, half goat-eaten. Fullness of time, I can't help thinking. The phrase just won't leave my mind. Fullness of time. You know, he says, you're a brave man, Kelly. I think I'd have run away screaming. His voice is different. It's thoroughly, unmistakably, a black man's voice, declarative, deep, warm, with a faint twang in the nasal consonants. It's just a couple of operations, he says, and some skin treatments in the right hands, no big deal at all. That is to say, it won't be when it becomes more common. Does it, does it, I'm flailing here. Does it have a name, what you've done? If it had a name, he says, what would that change exactly? Would it be more acceptable to you? Would it be a thing people do? Would it have a category unto itself? He laughs at me. I'm just playing with you, he says. You should see the look on your face. Kelly, of course it has a name. What do you think it would be called? Racial reassignment.
1: So your novel manages to ask some questions about identity and race that seems to sort of dominate the cultural conversation. I, s- I think we see this um, even in the passage you read. These questions aren't just philosophical. Um, what is race, what is whiteness, what is white privilege? They're also very practical and political in a sense. Uh, so could you talk about this? Why did you write the book? Um, what questions did you want to raise about race and identity, perhaps even about cultural
0: appropriation? I started writing your face and mine uh, at such a different moment. In the culture, uh, and it's you know it's a little difficult for me even to cast my mind back to where I started with the book in two thousand eight, two thousand nine, two thousand ten. So this is the early years of Obama, obviously, and you know it was a time when the phrase uh, "post racial" was actually taken seriously, and there was a lot of racial optimism. And a lot of um, feeling that we could be working toward a new sort of cultural unity or synthesis. There was a book that came out around that time called The Tanning of America that I read. It was this really interesting uh, book by a business uh, strategist type guy named Steve Stute about... um, White teenagers in hip hop culture and the influence of black uh, figures in the media, black celebrities, black culture more generally. Um, and so it was you know it was it was against that backdrop that I had the idea of writing a book about uh, racial reassignment that really drew on my own memories of a very distinctive moment in my own past, which is the early 90s when I was in high school, golden age of hip hop, or one golden age of hip hop. And uh, this sort of, the relationship that I had at that moment with hip hop and black culture and that my friends had, my white friends, and with the city of Baltimore, with um, the way Baltimore was c- culturally, uh, politically, socially in that moment. And, you know, I, I, it was so this is, you know, uh, this is a book that came from a desire to autobiographically inscribe a certain moment of my existence. That I had, you know, forgotten, and you know, so much s- in so many ways, forgotten and left behind in my adult life. So there was that, and I also wanted to, you know, bring it very much up to date with questions about um, the notion of where does racial self-identification come from, where do our racial desires come from, and the ways in which our racial uh, desires and feelings of racial selfhood are you know oftentimes much more complicated than we want to admit mm-hmm. so that was the place the book came from and so I mean uh,
1: just sort of surveying some of the events um, some of the debates that have gone on recently about identity and race and gender um, I mean you must you must now in a sense feel like if uh, that you you really did have your finger on the pulse of cultural conversation about identity while you're writing this book i mean you you wrote the book for instance before the the rachel dolezal controversy yeah Yeah. um so again just for listeners the dolezal controversy was this civil rights activist who it was discovered um was in a sense a white person passing as black um i think she she would claim something else she would claim something different um but even before that event you still must have known that your novel might trigger some of the responses um, or start some of the heated debates that the Dolezal All Debate did, in fact, trigger. Um, You've said before that friends and colleagues encouraged you not to write the novel, right? Or at least some of them did. Yeah. Um, Did you feel like the novel was worth writing despite such controversy or perhaps because of the possibility of such controversy? Did you want Hmm. to start these debates, these conversations?
0: Yeah. Yeah. The the person who really discouraged me was my agent at the time. This is in 2008, 2009. Um, And, you know, she didn't... I mean, we didn't have a long conversation about it. I described the idea to her, and she just very reflexively said, don't do that. Mm -hmm. You don't want the kind of trouble that that is going to bring you. And that caused me to put the idea aside for a a, a while. Um, And then I, I... Found a new agent and things sort of opened up for me in a in a very, in a very different way. And it you know in large part it's because of the agent I found Denise Shannon, um, that I wrote the book at all. She was the person whose enthusiasm really 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 made me feel like it was worth doing. Um, what was the argument she made that convinced you to do it? She didn't make an argument. She just got very excited when I described the book to her and said, like, I must see that, because I'd already written about 20 pages of the introduction. And she just said, I want to see it, I want to see it. And then she read it, and she said, "I, th- you know, I think this is great. I think we can sell this. And then in a very short time, she went out and sold it to, to uh, mm-hmm. Megan Lynch at Riverhead. Um, it's very, you know, I when I... Started off with the concept of racial reassignment surgery. I looked it up online and I couldn't find anything, or I could I could find almost nothing. Literally, just a couple of like comments and in, in blog posts and things like really almost nothing. A couple of y- some jokes about Michael Jackson, things like that. And I thought this is odd because how is it that nobody has looked at the idea of gender reassignment or the concept of, of transgender identity as it's currently articulated and not asked the question about like what would happen if you took the same idea of trans identity and migrated it onto race. I was, you know, I was really, I was, I was surprised and I had the feeling at that time that if I didn't do it, somebody else was going hmm. to do it. And that I really did sort of have my finger on a kind of cultural, uh, a cultural shift that I thought was gonna happen eventually so why not sort of get on it early and you know as a, as a writer um, uh, as a writer when you have that feeling um, you should act on it <laughs> you know? I mean you should you know you should act on it in some way because it's not you know you don't you the, to have that kind of cultural insight is something that doesn't, you know, doesn't happen every day. Um, you know, I, I had... What I was working against was my whole sort of artistic education as a writer, which basically told me that I wasn't supposed to write about race, that I wasn't supposed to write about black people. But, I, you know, I had been I had been... Sh- I had been Shirking that advice and rejecting that advice for a, for a long time, ever since I started writing about, even before I started writing about Hong Kong in my first book. Um, and I really felt that um. There's this uh, something that that um, Michael Chabon said when he published uh, his novel Telegraph Avenue. He said like he realized that he had been. Effectively, he realized that he had been avoiding writing about black people for a long time, even though black people had been a big part of his life. And he felt this, and what he said was like, I missed black people, which sounds like a a ridiculous thing to say, but there is this very powerful sense in which the American literary landscape, the landscape of American fiction is very racially uh, divided. And there are many white writers who have never written about race and have certainly never written about black people in any meaningful way. And it's very easy in that context to um, practice a kind of racial isolation that is um, you know, really a form of unrealism. Mm. Because the reality of American life is that it is, you know, it is multiracial and interracial reality of american fiction is 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 you know has has you know in some ways reproduces a very different world
1: so when preparing to write the book i mean so uh, you acknowledge i think very importantly um the very clear ways in which the literary scene in america is racially divided not just Mm -hmm. in terms of how many white writers there are who are Mm -hmm. published versus uh, writers of color but in terms of representation at the same time you've you acknowledged that there were some, not just like intellectual questions that you had to ask about how you would go about writing this particular book, but also ethical ones. Uh And it just seems like your awareness, not even just of the possibility of backlash, um, but also your awareness of really not, um, perhaps not adequately describing the texture uh-huh. The, of, the, of of this question and all of its complexity, these yep. questions that you're trying to raise. Um, you you must have had a feeling of this when you sat down to sort of write the book. Did your awareness of the complexity of these questions really affect the way you developed the plot and developed the characters? And did you... Uh, so I, I guess, were you always aware of the trickiness of these questions as you were writing, and did that affect the way you wrote?
0: Absolutely. I mean, it, you know, I, I knew that... Um, I knew that I wanted the book to move quickly in terms of the plot, and I knew that the plot was going, was something that I wanted to be a plot that grabbed your attention and that moved the reader along quickly. At the same time, uh, I I knew that I had to leave places for uh, a kind of meditative stasis where Kelly, the narrator, speaking in the first person, um, dwells on his own whiteness. And that, um, balance or tension between the pull of the narrative and the pull of the plot, the suspense of the plot, and the, um, inner dwelling of the narrator, you know, that's what produced the novel, that's what produced the novel that I, that I wrote, and, and, um, I wanted to do that in a way that was um, that felt you know to some degree that felt natural to the way you know to the way of Kelly's thinking about the world, but I also wanted to do it in a way that didn't that really you know that that made the novel they g- made space in the novel for concept and argument and political argument and political analysis within not not outside the context of the plot but within the context of the within the context of the of the drama which basically you know uh, effectively what that means is i i wanted to let certain scenes go on much longer than they had to if you're for purely dramatic reasons so for example there's a moment where kelly is at this kind of lawn party uh, with Martin, uh, and it's a, it's a benefit uh, fundraiser in Baltimore for a, um, a local political candidate who's an African-American woman. And it's being, and the party is being hosted by an African-American uh, family who's very prominent in the community. Uh, it's a very nice house, very beautiful part of the city. And so Kelly is sitting there with Martin and some of his friends who are also black men Martin's age, And they're having this long conversation about Obama and all these other things. And this is a conversation that in another kind of novel could be, could have been shortened to a page or a couple of pages because it doesn't directly, um, it doesn't directly serve the relationship between Martin and Kelly, except that in this case, it serves the larger purposes of the novel. And it's a conversation that I just wanted to let go on and sort of develop in the natural rhythm that a conversation has. And to me that is a very important quality, and one I think that um, certain readers, especially American readers, um, get very impatient.
1: Mm. So what did the conversation show? Like what did you want the dialogue to indicate about the characters and their thinking about politics?
0: Uh, You know, at that moment, you know, the conversation is about Obama and what kind of a president Obama is. And I wanted the conversation to go deeper than just sort of the superficial level on which we normally think about, you know, politics and and the context of uh, American political history or presidential history. Because one of the things that happens is that Martin starts talking about how— uh, Obama is a tragic president, is like, see, sees himself as almost like a sacrificial figure, as a martyr figure, and he's comparing him to Lincoln. Um, you know, I, I, I th- so what I think I wanted to do was have the characters thinking about um, the symbolic and, you know, even anthropological significance of our politics. And you know, just in, in a casual way, not in like a mm. sense of an academic symposium, but in sort of a way that's both casual, but also very profound. So it's, a, you know, for me, it was a matter of like pushing the conversation uh, out of the realm of the superficial, and that's something that usually only happens if the conversation is allowed to go on for a while.
1: Mm. So you've you've said or written before that after the novel came out, um, readers and critics, particularly white readers and critics, would often sort of say things like, wow, it was really brave of you to tackle race as a topic, uh-huh. or, you know, or so questions like, what, what did you feel gave you the right to write about race right. and identity? So I get the sense that you... You sort of bristle at these questions, um, or or perhaps you uh, you you, you, you distrust. Well, m- pr- perhaps you have something to say about where they come from or yeah. why people ask them. Yeah,
0: yeah. Um, you know, I I really I think it's important for us to question the notion that race is a subject for people of color to discuss and for white people not to discuss. And I think. I think that um, that is something that more and more people sort of take for granted. Mm. I think, but at the time <laughs> that I was writing your phase and mine, and in the fall of 2014, you know, and even to some degree, you know, in the literary world now, because the literary world, you know, has this kind of inherent sort of um, uh, entropy almost on the subject of race. You know, there there is there is this sense in which somehow to talk about race inevitably means talking about people of color. And talking about people of color um, always somehow g- gets gets reduced to a conversation about representing and appropriating the point of view of people of color. And you know what that what that sort of line of thinking reproduces is the sense that race equals people of color. It's that somehow like wh- when we talk about race, we're talking about anything other than talking about whiteness, and um, part of what I would say when that question came up is, you know, this is a novel about whiteness, not just about you know race in particular or about black people, and of course it is about about African American identity very much, but the core of it is about whiteness. It's about the, the characters are two, the main characters are two white men. Uh, one of whom has, you know, transformed himself and feels himself not to be a white man, but he is, you know, that's his point of origin. It's true that I'm not going to say that, like, it didn't take a certain amount of courage for me to uh, say, this is the novel I'm writing, this is the novel I'm publishing. It did. It was, a, you know, it was an anxious, nervous-making uh, experience. But often was the sort of subtext of those conversations was i'm glad you did it so i don't have to you know and 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 and, and, s- and I, you know i have i had and i have had and i have still people sometimes say to me better you than me mm. including some very f- very well known uh, writers who I would like meet at conferences or whatever, you know, who like knew what my book was about and were like, sort of like, better you to take that on, you know, because I am never going to. Um, uh, and, th- you know, that to me is, um, you know, it, it gets into the, first of all, it gets into the realm of a kind of a deep moral irresponsibility from my, from my perspective. But it's also like the sense of um, this feeling of uh, being very comfortable inside uh, a certain psychological enclosure, uh, which James Baldwin called the sunlit sunlit playpen of white American life. And, you know, I recognize that feeling very well. I know that. I know that feeling very well. but. Uh, it's amazing to me that people will just come out and say these things. So I mean, it's, it's amazing, and it's not amazing. In some ways, it's actually, uh, it's it's actually helpful. And I would, I would rather have them come out and say them than just think them, because in some ways, like if you say something and something comes out of your mouth, then maybe later you'll think about it and you'll think. You know, it was interesting that I put it that way. What does that say about me? Maybe Sh- that's a moment. You know, hopefully that can be a moment of self-reflection for the person I'm talking to. Sure, well. and, and
1: I mean it's interesting you 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 describe it as as an indication of a kind of moral moral irresponsibility. I think, I think in a certain sense that that must be true. But I also wonder if the hesitation um, on the part of the people who are saying, you know, better you than me, might that in many ways come from a position of ac- at least acknowledging okay the tradition of writing that i'm inheriting as like as like a white writer and yeah. the esta- in the sort of literary establishment right. is one that that doesn't have the best track record not just on the representation of people mm-hmm. of color just like mm-hmm. having them in novels um, but writing about uh, for lack of a better phrase, sort of what it is to sort of be a person of color in the world or mm-hmm. in America, mm-hmm. and they mm-hmm. realize that they don't necessarily have the t- the tools to write about it meaningfully or well, right? And so they don't want they they don't want to do it because they don't feel like they would do at all a good job of it, and they would in this sense just be sort of perpetuating the problem.
0: Yeah, I think you know, I I think there's I think there's something very deeply encoded in American whiteness that presupposes. A kind of inner weakness, or failing, or inability, or um, how shall I put this? As as you're saying, a lack of uh, a lack of the tools to deal with something. And th- the the interesting thing about that is that it's in a context of white supremacy. So it's, it's a way of the kind of polite discourse of uh, American cultural life or American social life for white people has to do with this feeling of, um, this feeling of like frailty or fragility or inability or you know, unskillfulness that's actually a way of saying uh, it doesn't matter to me. You know, it doesn't. It's not. Ne- it's n- it's not. Ne- it doesn't matter to me because it's not necessary. Mm. You know, like I can be successful. I can be happy. I can feel uh, achieved. I, I I can feel like accomplished. I should say, without having to do those. Without having to do those things.
1: So actually, just to um, sort of dig into your lines of thinking about um, this question, I'd like to just recall the beginning of an article you wrote for the New Republic called um, What Are White Writers For? So at the beginning of, our, of, of the article you take issue with the arguments about race in literature advanced by two different white writers uh-huh. Lionel Shriver and Jonathan Franzen yeah. um, so just really quickly to recap, in that in, in, in that article you summarize the positions sort of like this, so Shriver suggests that any writer white or not should be able to write from the perspective of any person, any race. Uh, The thinking here seems to be that literature is about empathy and narrative imagination and that to deny any writer the opportunity to imagine what life is like for someone of another race is to deny the possibility of empathy itself in a way. Um, um, The other argument, Franzen's, is rather different. Franzen says that at least in his own case, he's not interested in or capable of writing from the perspective of a person of another race, because frankly, he's never been deeply close or profoundly intimate for an extended period of time mm-hmm. with someone who wasn't white. He makes this admission, right? Uh, so they basically advance these two different white, uh, major white writers advance diametrically opposed arguments, mm-hmm. but you dislike both of them.
0: Yeah, I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't say by any means that Lionel Shriver is a major uh, white writer. I would say that previous to um, that speech she gave in, in Brisbane, um, she was actually a quite, you know, a really marginal, not very widely recognized writer who had uh, just published a novel, la- this was last summer, um, that uh, got very little recognition. Uh, I, had, I, had n- I had not heard about this novel at all, and you know, the novel, uh, um, Contained a lot of uh, racial stereotypes and obviously very provocative things. It's a dystopian novel set in the future. Among other things, like the president of the United States is a Mexican, is this sort of like very stereotypical Mexican, and so uh, Lionel Shriver's Lionel Shriver was critiqued uh, for the racist uh, stereotyping and caricatures in her novel by Ken Kalfas in a review but all of the uh, none of the other reviews brought that up and I, I, I think it was because of Calus's review that she wrote this that she delivered this this lecture um, in very inflammatory language wearing a s- sombrero which mm. was the sort of gesture the signaling to the American right that um, you know she supported the right of you know college students to wear ridiculous Halloween outfits Um and, you know, in, 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 in so doing so, she, you know, you could say, I mean, she helped her career uh, a great deal but in the sense of just making herself much more visible. Yeah, but I wouldn't say, yeah, I, I wouldn't, say, I wouldn't a say she was a, yeah, I wouldn't yeah. say that she's, uh, you know, I, I wouldn't say that she's like a quote unquote major novelist. I would say Friends and really is a major novelist. Mm-hmm. Um, but there, yeah, there are, the, you know, as I said in that piece in The New Republic, their arguments are really two ways of two ways of really not engaging with the substantive question about what fiction writing is and what novelists, you know, what novelists are supposed to be doing. Because uh, to s- to say the the g- to, to like sort of just issue a sort of blanket statement, the way that Shriver. Does is essentially to say that no uh, white writer, or really no writer at all, should ever be critiqued about uh, a misrepresentation uh, in a in a in a work of in a work of fiction, because somehow fiction, uh, you know, so fiction sort of casts this kind of uh, veil of um, immunity or something, you know, where where. None of the representations in a piece of fiction ever have to have anything to do with the quote-unquote real world, which is complete nonsense. Um, And Franzen, on the other hand, makes this case that uh, he is um, exempted from, he feels himself to be exempted from ever having to, essentially ever having to care about non-white characters. Not just just, uh, include them or refer to them, but care about them. Because he personally, emo- it's the opposite case. That because he personally, emotionally, he says, "I've never been in love with a black woman," and therefore, like, I feel like I can't write these characters. But you know, a, a, again, like as as I was saying before, there's a way of reducing the conversation when you're talking about fiction. There's a way of reducing the conversation about race. And, 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 and invocations of race in fiction, to a question about who gets to appropriate what perspective. And one of the first questions I always have is, why is it always about, why is it always a question of perspective or point of view? What is wrong with writing fiction from the point of view of a white character that accurately represents the world we live in, in which white characters do not only meet and talk to other white characters. I mean, there's a version here of the, the kind of the Bechdel test. Alison Bechdel has this, uh, has this suggestion about any narrative that you know, for uh, that that, um, in order to, actually, uh, represent, women fairly or equitably, a narrative needs to include a scene where two women are talking without a man present about something other than men. And you know, you could propose something equivalent for a race where you have uh, characters who are, you have characters present in a narrative who are of different races or different ethnic or cultural origins and they're not there to talk about race or they're not they're not there principally for the purpose of saying something about 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 race. And you know and I would you know and this is something I've written about very widely most american fiction written by white people fails that test mm. completely. So I think in the case of
1: shriver, you know, I w- I won't um, I I just like to throw out some um not counter arguments, but uh, tentative uh, defenses of each position and now that I think about it, I actually maybe don't want to do that with shriver instead i'll I'll say more generally that w- one of the ways um, one of the ways literature gets its popular defense um, um, usually in like in like books written by public intellectuals or something defending literature, defending the humanities generally, Mm -hmm. um, is that they, that they, um, encourage us to be more empathic to, to, to uh-huh. have more narrative imagination, to imagine what it's mm-hmm. like to be in someone else's shoes. Uh-huh. As you point out, that's not really what Shriver was doing. Shriver was doing something else, something more political, something more sort of like almost along the lines of like Milo Yiannopoulos sort of like um, grandstanding. Uh,
0: yeah, and, and I think a lot of what she was interested in is not just like permission to represent, but permission to caricature.
1: Okay. Um, in, in the case of Franzen, though, just uh, – Again, a counter-argument. I mean, it, it, it does seem like there is, a, maybe there is a kind of humili- uh, an admirable humility in Franzen's position that he admits that though it would be good for writers to aspire to be able to m- make these representations and do them adequately, um, he's acknowledging his fundamental limitation in this respect um mm-hmm. and for that reason isn't going to try. And I guess my question mm. is, do you think it's incumbent upon him to try?
0: Well, um, that's a you know, I'm I'm all for humility. I think humility is very important. But the truth is that Franzen is not a humble writer mm. in any dimension of his work he's a hugely ambitious universalizing writer who deals with the biggest themes on his own terms and with uh, very large sort of schemes of and very sort of broad and obviously national schemes of of uh representation i mean you don't call your novels freedom and purity if, if you're not um you know, if you're not angling toward a kind of uni- universalistic concept of fiction, and it, you know, if if you do that, you are um, you're in the territory of um, how shall I put this? You can't, you know, to say. To, to claim or to project a sense of national or universal ambition and also authority, which and very much does, and then to say, oh, but my imagination is so circumscribed that I can't possibly empathize with these characters because I, I haven't known them intimately. There are many, many characters in Franzen's novels that he hasn't loved or <laughs> had an intimate relationship with and it doesn't it doesn't you know it doesn't stop him with the you know the Norwegians on the cruise ship in in, in, in the corrections like you know Franzen do somehow doesn't have a problem with representing you know Norwegianness <laughs> And yet he does it you know. He does. He does. You know. And yet he would say that, like, there's no way that he could have like an African American woman in that scene. That's that's ridiculous. I'm sorry. I, th- I think that I think that is that's what what he's talking about. The the part of part of the difficulty with this um, way of talking about literature is that he's saying like this is actually a personal failing of mine. Or you could even say this is a moral failing of mine, and that you know, and y- you know, yes, it is, but it's, but that's not really the issue because you know, frankly, I don't care about Jonathan Franzen's personal li- personal life or moral life. That's his business. Um, it's an artistic failing. It's an artistic failure, and um, most white American fiction, um, because it uh, pretends to have a large Imagination, it, prens- it pretends to a kind of universalizing ambition, but also circumscribes itself. Has failed artistically. It just has. You know that we're ta- we're talking about the entire careers of writers who are otherwise, you know, whose work has been praised to the skies and is otherwise excellent and highly accomplished. Um, it's you know in one in one crucial way it has failed artistically. Uh, it is you know it's I mean, I would say this about Philip Roth for example Philip Roth's failure to deal with race, as part of American culture in the post-war era you know his great theme, you know he's d- he know, he d- he did a phenomenal job, with uh, other aspects of the American experience but his failure to deal with race. Is is a major. It's just a major uh, um, lacuna. It's a major, um, you know, not not just a blind spot, but a way of curtailing his imaginative power.
1: So I'd like to ask um, a sort of a bit about you and your development um, um, as a writer, and also the development of uh, some of your um, positions on what artists should aspire to with mm-hmm. respect to writing about race mm-hmm. and identity. So in an essay uh, called Native Sons, which you published in uh, Guernica, you write very movingly about the experience of first encountering the work, well actually the, the voice of James Baldwin mm-hmm. while mm-hmm. listening to an old uh, Studs Terkel interview when yeah. you were driving yeah. to Ann Arbor to start grad school. Right. Um, uh, this is when uh, you, you were 23. Uh, you describe after hearing Baldwin, picking up a copy of Another Country uh, and thinking, I want to write a book like this. Um, could you describe Another Country to listeners, and what, what attracted you to it?
0: Um, it? It's funny, because I've been working on an, an essay in my uh, new book, which is a sort of extension of that, where I try to work through these things. So I've been thinking a lot about Another Country again. Um, You know, and it's a book that really needs to be visited again uh, and again. You know, I've taught it several times, so that's one way of of revisiting a book. Um, You know, another country is—it's a very large-scale, naturalistic kind of novel. Uh, You know, its narration is sort of very loose and flowing, and uh, and musical. It's about a uh, black musician in New York City in the um, around 1960s when the action of the book takes place, uh, who's in an interracial relationship that has gone terribly wrong and has become very violent and very abusive, and he's spiraling into depression and he commits suicide in roughly in the first. Th- Third or even quarter of the novel, so it has a very very unusual. The novel has a very unusual structure. It's a little bit like the movie Psycho, in which the main character, or who we think I- the person who we think is the protagonist, dies about uh, halfway or less than halfway into the book, and so it's the structure where you have like uh, death of the protagonist, and then the rest of the book is sort of a, a reassembling of the characters around the event of the death of the protagonist. So in another country, the first part is very much focused on Rufus, or the name of the musician who kills himself. And then uh, the rest of it is this sort of uh, narrative that goes into the lives of Rufus's friends and lovers and these people who are, uh, you know, who, who are really shattered by his uh, suicide. And the, the reason why I think that structure works so beautifully is because it's a kind of a metaphor for the horror of, the horror of, um, the horror of uh, or the unbearability of racial life in the, ni- in the United States, crystallized in the suicide of this very promising young uh, musician. Young black man and then what and then the rest of it is the aftermath and in some sense that you know That's it's it's a metaphor for um, The response of a group of people very different people To the kind of um, You know to the to the to the to the pain and the brutality and the murderousness that's at the center of uh american racial life and so there is it you know there's there's another interracial uh romance that happens there's um a a gay romance uh that comes up in a very unexpected way there's a you know there's a a white uh, couple whose relationship is falling apart there's a lot of different things that happen and in some ways i think that makes the book difficult for people to deal with, difficult for the reader because it just feels like too big and going in too many places. But I actually think that Baldwin, uh, you know, conducts it like a symphony in a very beautiful way where it's constantly sort of, seems to be like verging on being out of control, but finally, uh, you know, concludes in this huge like symphonic, unexpected, like sort of symphonic moment at the end. So it's a very big Picture um, hugely ambitious, you know, book that is finally about the question of capturing uh, multiple perspectives and multiple subjectivities within the same narrative. So,
1: I guess that's my question. Uh, in response, is so you were attracted to this book? What you were just, what you have just described, uh, in a sense, are the ways in which the formal elements of the text are the way it's structured allowed Baldwin to say certain particular things about American culture. Mm-hmm. Um, I, it, what in particular did you want to emulate about the book? Did you want to take up the same mm. questions, or did you mm-hmm. want to do something similar with structure that would allow you to ask different questions?
0: I wanted to, what you know, what I always am looking for or, you know, or trying to come back to is the feeling of representing multiple subjectivities in the same space? You know, of having multiple subjectivities and points of view in the same in the same space. Um, and I, you know, I, I think the one, you know, if I were to say like the one failing of another country, or the the one the one way in which it's so much a book of 1962 and not a book of 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 the early 21st century is that um it has a kind of like thundering you know i mean this is the case of a lot of baldwin's work especially at that at that time it has this kind of this feeling of like symphonic uh intensity and and musicality and uh and sort of seriousness that doesn't allow it to have much of a sense of humor. There are funny things that happen in it. You know, it's not a book without a sense of humor. But, um, you know, I I think that, uh, you know, I I, I think that that, uh, the thing I'm also looking for in my work is, you know, an element of, an element of satire or an element of absurdity that I think is really crucial in understanding the true dimensions of American racial life. Mm. You know that there there that there there the, there, there has to be um, you're talking about like a balance of like absurdity and murder. And that's a very hard balance <laughs> to strike. But those two that, you know, in some sense, I think those when you're talking about American racial life, you can't forget either one of those things.
1: So you write something very interesting on some of these issues in your essay, quote, What Are White Writers For? We've been talking about it a bit. Um, I'd just like to uh, uh, offer a quotation um, from near the middle of that article. So you write, We still live in a culture in which white people are very seldom stopped from doing anything they want to do. And when they are stopped or challenged, get extraordinarily upset about it. I'm one of them. I inherited this attitude and have inhabited it all my life. My term for it is white dream time. Mm-hmm. And waking up in the middle of a dream, as we all know, is an unpleasant experience. End quote. So I'm wondering, in, in your thinking about race in America and mm-hmm. perhaps around the time of your encounter with Baldwin, perhaps before it, was there a moment where you remember being woken up from this dream and do you think you still have to be woken up from it?
0: Yeah, I, d- I do because um uh I you know, I think that one of the things about white American life is that, you know, I came up with the phrase white dream time a long time ago. But um you know, the other side of talking about white dream time is the way that I think about it now in the sort of post Trump world is, is it's 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 you can describe it as dream time, you can also describe it as n- narcolepsy, uh, white narcolepsy that is constantly falling back asleep. Because I, th- you know, I think that one of the fundamental, um, Experiences of or wha- one of the fundamental ways in which white American culture, mainstream American culture, has dealt with race in the post-civil rights era is to have this this uh, this attitude or this affect of "Oh my God, racism is still here," and then you fall back asleep. "Oh my God, it's still here." It's you know, it's like I'm waking up and this is still happening. And then I'm gonna, you know, fall asleep. And then I'm, you know, so it's this, it's this, it's this sense of like being, um, you know, the phrase "being woke" is something that's, you know, that's sort of very much in the in the in the popular discourse these days. The question, you know, that comes up with a phrase like that is like, um, you know, we're talking about educated adults here who like, re- you know, read the newspaper every day and uh, and um, you know, have their social media feeds and all these things. Like, h- how is it that they're not? Uh, how is it that like they just woke up? How is it that they just realize these things? And I think you know the, my way of describing it is to say um, there's something about American whiteness that is very powerfully narcoleptic. That is constant. That is, that is constantly um, you know reinforcing its own uh, you know its own its own dreamlike uh, quality. And I you know I think in some sense like if you live a life of if you experience a privileged life uh, to the degree that white Americans who never leave the United States or who, ne- who never leave their own neighborhoods or communities uh, experience life, then um, you sort of feel like everyone's life has got to be that day. You just think of that as the natural circumstance of the world. And um, it's very difficult to there's, there's nothing in your life that asks you to widen your imagination. you know like it, you know you have a kind of uh, psy- experience of profound psychological like reinforcement and consistency. And I think that America that American white people, you know most of them really experience their lives that way and that you know th- of course that goes for me too.
1: W- was there a moment in say your childhood or your upbringing or your education where you felt like um like wha- i suppose another way of putting the question is when did you start thinking about white dream dream time and when did you realize mm-hmm. that you were someone who was experiencing it
0: it's a good question i mean it was you know i i grew up in a family that was very much you know i grew up from a very early age uh i, d- I didn't You know, I lived in in a big city. I lived in Washington, D.C. Um, I was accustomed to the presence of, uh, you know, people of color from a very early age. Um, But I certainly never thought about whiteness as such. Um, Until... I think it was really you know it was it, w- it was really in my early teenage years when I started thinking about um, when I started reading a lot about animal rights and about ecology and when I was first exposed to texts like the autobiography of Malcolm X and these kinds of things I think it w- it was it was then that I started really having a sense of what judith butler describes as the psychic life of power like i i I really had a sense of like guilt and personal complicity and for me in some ways like the first way in which i really identified that in my own life was thinking about animals and was thinking about uh, i became a vegetarian when i was 14 and i got really interested in animal rights and uh animal like experimentation and vivisection and and uh and all those things and i was very um i was able to think about cruelty to animals in this very in this way that um you know for whatever reason like gave me a real feeling of political agency, like I could do something about it by not eating meat, et cetera. And I, you know, I think in some ways like that really, that sense of personal responsibility and complicity, which is very immediate when you think about meat eating, um, you know, really affected the rest of my consciousness. That was really like the, you know, if there was one sort of thing that really, you know, politicized me as a person, it was it was that.
1: So uh, it, it's interesting just sort of looking at um, not just your novel, uh, but also obviously a lot of the essays you've written and uh, the book you're working on now, which sounds like mm-hmm. it's a, it's a basically a work of cultural criticism. Yeah, yeah, um, sure. I, I, in some ways, I mean, uh, uh, much of your work centers on similar questions mm-hmm. about race and identity. Yeah. Do you think that in many ways, the life you've been leading as a writer and as a critic and as a kind of academic mm. is a response to that feeling of personal com- complicity um, um, or even guilt that you've described.
0: Yeah, it's. I mean, he, here's the thing. Like, I, 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 I really try to way Try to excuse me. I really try to stay away from concepts of guilt because i think that they can be very uh counterproductive because because thinking about personal guilt uh in a in a christian cultural formation means that uh if you have guilt and you have sin then you have the ability of confession and you have the ability of um uh redemption and grace uh um What's the term I'm looking for? Salvation. Salva- y- y- salvation, but also like the 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 um, mitigating or dissolving of your sins. Mm-hmm. The word is. Uh, I
1: good. should I should <laughs> <laughs> I should know this too. I yeah. was, uh, reconciliation, penance, to do penance,
0: penance, um, um, ab- absolving, abso- abs- uh, absolution, absolution. Yeah, absolution yeah. is what I'm talking about. So, um, and I you know, and I think the logic of sin, confession, penance, and absolution. Uh, is very, you know, is part of the sort of circular narcoleptic logic of race in, in America. So I really try to stay away from, I, I try to stay away from that. I, and, and I tend to think of it as a kind of artistic uh, engagement that has to do with um, identifying my own personal well-being and uh, happiness with, you know, the que- questions of liberation of all people. So it's, you know, for me, it's like, it's, it's I, I, I really think that um, uh, it's very, and I, I say this, I say this at the end of my essay on Baldwin, like, fundamentally, as an artist, um, I mean, all artists, in some sense, first of all, you have the choice of whether or not to actively be an artist to practice your art form, because God knows there's lots of other things that you could be doing with your life. A person could be doing with a life, um, but then there's also a question of like, of of you know, all artists choose their subject material, and you know, even though there are social um, constructs and assumptions about what art what artists you know, work with what subject material, actually all artists, you know, are capable to some degree of choosing their subject material, what feels important and uh, necessary, but also uh, interesting to them. And so in my case, like dealing with this material is what's interesting and fruitful to me because there's so much tension and, uh, you know, there's so much tension and dissonance and challenge in it, and so that is what for me. That's you know, so that's that's fulfilling. It's not out of a sense of moral obligation. Mm. It's not out of a sense of guilt. It's not out of a sense of penance. Um, you could say it's out of a feeling. You know, it might be out of a feeling of reparation or restoration. But you know, part of that like reparation or restoration has to do with my own psychic liberation as well it's not you know it's 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 not a matter of um solving some objectified problem it's a matter of the question of personal transformation that i think i've been uh, asking all my life why is it that we have to live the way that we live and what alternatives are out there for all people not just for one you know group of people
1: so this will be among i think my last questions but i'd just like to ask you a bit more about this this, this ethic that you have of trying to come at these questions um, not necessarily out of a sense of guilt and a, a, um, a search for personal absolution um, or just an alleviation of a feeling of sinfulness and thus a, a, an ultimate forgetting of the sin itself, in a way, um, to use the terms we were using before, um, but instead um, it, to to... to To come at these questions in the way that you described, which which is more nuance, more sort of personal, Mm -hmm. deep personal Mm -hmm. investment in a deep sense of real political and social importance um, and significance. I mean, just uh, just a way of getting at this. uh, You were talking about white dream time, sleeping and waking up, and you brought up this term woke and wokeness and and that's i think that's especially interesting on on social media like twitter because now in many ways so being woke can be in many cases be a form of political progress Mm -hmm. at Mm -hmm. the same time it also can be a performance that Mm -hmm. is a kind of virtue Mm signaling that says Mm -hmm. and does only something for the person doing it and doesn't Mm -hmm. actually accomplish anything necessarily could you could you talk about the dynamics of that and how you think about your work as staying away from that second kind of wokeness, but embracing the first kind. Do you mm-hmm. think? Do you think mm-hmm. of the work you're doing as, in any way, relating? I suppose to this question of wokeness, and in what particular ways?
0: Well, I, I mean, it's uh, I, because I think a lot about these very deeply seated symbolic figures and metaphors. In our culture, about um, the 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 way the way that we think about epiphanies, the way that we think about enlightenment, the way that we think about uh, um, you know waking up or awakening, realization. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm ve- you know obviously I'm very interested in. These, you know, and also, you know, dreaming and, you know, what and the sort of like, you know, what happens when you were, you know, what what were you doing when you were dreaming? What happened when you woke up? I'm really interested in these things. Um, I think that you're correct that uh, a lot of what we think of as wokeness is a kind of performance. And, you know, to me, I think in some sense, like, that's okay. I'm not really that interested in, in uh, demarcating like what is performance and what is authenticity, because I think there's an element of both. In you know, I don't, I don't really think that that demarcation is uh, as strong as we might assume it is. Um, I think that I- it's the the what's important to me about the work that I'm doing is that. I never want to act as if I'm coming out of nowhere. I'm inventing something for the first time. I'm articulating something that's never been thought of before, or that there's something, y- you know, that there's something um, intrinsically special about me. D- you know, about me doing it like I'm. You know, I'm this like. Uh, you know, sort of avatar of. Uh, enlightened whiteness or something like that because i think those are uh, those are all very very problematic gestures and affects and 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 uh, symbolisms um, you know i for me it's really important that my work be rooted in the the writing that's come before about these things about these subjects and that it be aware of Where its uh, metaphors and um, rhetorical patterns are coming from, Uh, and that was very important when I wrote my novel, in the sense that I really wanted to uh, make sure that I was um, that the novel, in some sense, was you know was was self-aware about how these narratives have come up in American culture before. I really wanted to be, you know, to have that be part of the sort of framework of the novel. Um, you know, because I, I, in some sense, like I think that the, um, you know, like th- this, the subject matter of race per se, is. I don't think it's something that you can. Uh, turn to and then turn away from. I think it's much better as, a, you know, it's it's much better to think of it as something that is just an, 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 an inextricable, you know, part of our experience and way of living in the world. And it's much healthier to think of it as a dimension of our lives in m- multiple ways than it is to think of it as, you know, like, a subject matter in itself because among other things talking about race in itself is very boring is very is very it's very constricting because race is a you know r- racism racialization is an invented system and uh it's a very trite and artificial and um unimaginative system you know series of like categorizations and reductions um and it's just very, it's very boring to always think of, you know, to always keep re- recapitulating the language of black and white, black and white, black and white. Um, and even the terms themselves, black and white, are things that, you know, it, it's very easy to get tired of that language. Um, and I think anybody who thinks about race, you know, to any degree or with any, you know, it just j- gets sort of exhausted at that, you know, sort of continuing recapitulation. Um, although, You know, we always have to remember that, you know, what is behind the recapitulation of those terms is, you know, actual violence and actual, you know, and and actual uh, danger and an actual threat to actual people. It's always very important to keep that in mind. But rhetorically... you know, I think in order to get deeper and deeper into this, you know, the 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 sources of um, where these categories came from and what these categories, you know, do to us psychologically, um, it's necessary to just keep asking uh, different and surprising and challenging, you know, questions to just keep going sort of deeper and deeper and keep know kind of rhizomatically exploring this place and then this place and then this place and that's a you know I, I you know i mean i i i just i i hope that um when people look at the work i've been doing that they can see the the through line and um you know and the 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 commitment that's always sort of been there in one way or another and you know that's you know that's what's that's what's really important to me. you know in the in the end, like I can't um, you know I, I feel like I can't stand in judgment about uh, other you know thinkers or writers or whatever in terms of their relationship to race. I can just uh, focus on what I'm doing myself and you know what I'm doing is to try to maintain this commitment to you know going deeper and deeper into these questions and being, you know, uh, intellectually and artistically honest about that
1: I think that's a great place to, uh, to stop thanks so much Jess Rao, for coming on the podcast thank
0: you thank you Joe
1: that was Jess Rowe author of Your Face in Mine Common Ground is a podcast brought to you by the Howenstein Center at Grand Valley State University the director of the Howenstein Center and producer of this podcast is Gleaves Whitney Kadar Jabbar edits the podcast and Andrew Whitney composed our theme music the Howenstein Center is inspired by Ralph W. Howenstein's life of leadership and service. Our programs address many of the most pressing issues in American life. Our annual Progressive Conservative Conference challenges leading thinkers on the left, as well as the right, to explore the possibility of common ground and to redefine their respective traditions. Our annual conference in the Midwest brings together academics and journalists to discuss the cultural and political significance of the region that's often called the flyover country. And of course, the Howenstein Center is itself a center for presidential studies. It's been quite a year for the presidency, that's for sure. To learn more about our programs, visit howensteincenter.org and follow Howenstein GVSU on Facebook and Twitter. You can also follow me on Twitter at Joe Hogan CGI. And really quick, I'd just like to give a, a shout out to um, the nice uh, listener who sent me that message on Amazon. Thanks so much. It's very kind of you to reach out. Uh, Thank you, Um, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Joseph Hogan, and this has been Common Ground.